mundane nature, the other very serious, but the first is uh, I want to thank Kevin Bridges and Jerry Thigpen for those new racks in the pews. Uh, those were made and installed by them, and you'll see a new friendship pad uh, that's designed to fit inside of that. Uh, so uh, I've waited until we were complete with that project before uh, thanking them, neither of whom are here right now, but hopefully uh, Kevin, and as we continue to, to pray for Jerry as well, we'll know that. Uh, most of you know that one of our longtime members and members of the choir, Jay Hawkins, died this past Thursday, and the funeral is in this room at 3 p.m. Th this afternoon. And I join with you, like many have, and are continuing to do to pray for Kathy and, and the entire family. James chapter 5, as we've been studying James off and on for several months, and I had hoped to make this the last sermon, but typical of me, when I got into it, I said, this is, this is just too target-rich. <laughs> and uh, so after the missions conference, I'll, I'll try and wrap it up. Uh, but for today, we'll be looking at beginning at verse 13, and I'll read through the end of the chapter, though we won't cover all that in, in the sermon. Hear God's word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Join with me, if you will, in prayer. Father, you've told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We come with hungry souls and ask that you would give us nourishment now from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The years I've been not only a Christian, but also a pastor for uh, almost 40 years. Uh, the people I meet occasionally that have typically walked away from the Christian faith, uh, even though at one time you, you would have thought that this person would never do so, of all the reasons that I've encountered, uh, without a question, the number one is people that have been disillusioned with a Christian faith because they prayed for a healing for someone near them and it didn't happen. There are many other reasons, some intellectual, some bitterness. Uh, uh, they've been sinned against by another person, but without a doubt, that is the number one. Uh, and in some cases, they were told to expect that if they only believed hard enough and had enough faith in their prayers that God would spare their loved one or their close friend, and it didn't happen. And they, they basically said, well, if there is a God, he doesn't care. The important first step toward understanding Scripture is context. 
And there is no controversy, no lack of controversy on these verses. I can tell you that. Among committed Christians who believe the Bible, when you get into this passage, uh, there are a variety of opinions about what some of the finer points mean. Some of the broad ones, as we'll see in a moment, are uh, without dispute. But we have to look at the context. And the context of this passage is prayer. If you just glance then, if, you've not, if you're not familiar with this passage and if you paid attention while we were reading it, then you saw that prayer is mentioned in every verse from verse 13 to verse 18. Uh, individual believers are called to pray, as we'll see. Elders are called to pray. All of us in a church are called to pray. So let's just look, without further ado, let's just look at the passage. As James has done throughout the book, he, he poses questions. Uh, as he's done in every chapter, he asks very probing questions. And, and here he begins with, is anyone among you suffering? The King James has, is anyone afflicted? Uh, what should that say to us? Well, uh, immediately it ought to tell us that Christians don't live on some kind of pain-free mountaintop life. Uh, this trouble, this suffering, this affliction uh, may be physical, it, it may be mental, it may be psychological, it may be personal, it may be financial, it may be spiritual. We know that in the previous chapter, uh, right before this, or the previous passage, he's talking about believers who were being oppressed by wealthy landowners. And they were doing work and they were being defrauded out of their, their income. Uh, so in all those spheres, we can be afflicted, just to name a few. And so as fallen, sinful people living in a fallen, sinful world, we experience the same sufferings as anyone else. If you, if you go through the experience of breaking a leg, your pain will not be any less because you're a Christian than if you were not a Christian. If you go to a surgeon, if you're going to have a surgery that has a rather painful recovery, the surgeon will not say, well, let me ask you, when you say, what kind of pain will I experience? So he'll say, well, are you a Christian or not a Christian? Well, if you're not a Christian, it'll be level six. If you are a Christian, it'll be level three. No, there's nothing like that. Um, so what are we to do? What do we do normally when trouble arises, when we are afflicted? Well, some of us may talk to everybody. You may be the type of person that just expresses yourself. Whether someone wants to hear it or not, you just tell them what you're thinking and what you're feeling and, and how bad that person is that's, that's causing the affliction in your life. Uh, maybe others internalize it all. You don't tell anyone. But what does God tell us to do here? James says... Pray. It's very simple. Is anyone afflicted? Let him pray. Pray about it. Do you pray about your afflictions? Do you pray about your troubles? Now, this has come full circle. James started in chapter 1, and what did he say? I considered all joy when you encounter various trials. And now he comes back and said, Are you facing trials? Are you afflicted? Pray. So, he, in a sense, he's right back where we started. We pray. You say, well, I don't feel like praying, especially when I'm going through trouble. I don't, I don't feel like it. I don't think God, I don't feel that God is close to me. I, I, I'm, rather, I'm just dealing with the pain. I'm dealing with the disappointment. You say, well, I don't know what to say. Well, here's my suggestion. Use 
God's Word. Use the prayers He's given us, the Psalms. There's every human experience in the Psalms. You can read the Psalms. You can pray the Psalms. Pray the prayers of Paul in the New Testament. Uh, you can find those when he was in trouble, when he was arrested in a jail, when he was free to preach the gospel. We have those prayers. Pray those. I was helped greatly during a very dark time a number of years ago that lasted for months. And, and almost every day I started off listening to a sermon on the Psalms by George Robertson, who was the pastor at that time at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta. George uh, has a PhD. He, he wrote the notes on the Psalms in the Life Transformation Bible, and he took five years and preached through all the Psalms on, on Sunday nights. And so typically it would be one Psalm per sermon. I don't remember ever reading Psalm 6, and that sermon I listened to over and over. Uh, I, I could not have come up with the thoughts that are in that Psalm. So pray. When you're suffering, pray. Now, let's move on. Then in the second part of the verse, he says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Okay, now he's probably covered the gamut. Is anyone afflicted? Having troubles? You say, well, I'm not. Okay, are you happy? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. All right, there's application for you as well. Let him sing praise to God. Now, why would he have to give a word to someone who may be doing well? who may be cheerful, who they're not being afflicted at the time. Well, because that's when we're likely to forget him. And the scriptures warn us about that. Many of Christ's parables tell us that, that, that when we have enough to eat and everything seems to be going fine, that is when we are inclined to just say, well, even subconsciously, I, I don't really need God. I don't need God at this moment. And so when the, the clouds lift and the, the bombs are no longer going off, we're likely to say, yeah, I've got this. I'm okay. You know, I mean, life's good. Here's a perfect example of, of both of these in the book of Acts. It's chapter 16. Paul and Silas are, are preaching the gospel. What, well, let me give you the context, and I'll read you a couple of the verses. There are these, these people that are making money off a young woman who has a capacity, because of an evil spirit, to fortune tell. It's kind of a bizarre passage uh, of Scripture. It's a bizarre event. Paul and Silas come, and, and she is delivered from that spirit that gives her the capacity to do it. Rather than being happy that this person is no longer enslaved to this, the people making the money off of her are furious. So they... They incite the mob and they grab Paul and Silas because now their, their gravy train has ended. And it says they beat them with rods. Well, let me read it to you. Verse 22 of Acts 16. The crowd joined in attacking them. The crowd did. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their stock, feet in the stocks. So can you imagine? I looked up the uh, images and detailed about what it would be like to be beaten with, with rods of this type. Uh, we're not talking something short. 
picture more like a broom handle that's made of hardwood. Uh, when I was in high school, and this tells you about my hometown and my high school, um, fights were a daily occurrence uh, in the school. There were 400 in my graduating class. You only, you know, you kind of knew about 20 people, and then you just fought, you just hoped for survival during the day. And I remember there was a, a, a fellow that he had a, he had a broom handle. And I, I didn't see it happen, but I saw the result. And he, he hid behind a wall. He was just mad. And the first person that came by, he swung like a baseball bat, and he hit this guy right there. Well, I was in the lunchroom when the fellow walked in. And it looked the size of like a tennis ball. It was purple, the, the knot on his head, you know what I mean, where he had gotten hit. And they, they were trying to find the person that did it. And I thought about that. I said, imagine having that over and over and over. And then they take them and they, they've torn the claws off of them. They, they throw them into a cell. Imagine the shock of the stench that here Paul and Silas had had their freedoms moments ago. Now they're who knows, teeth knocked out perhaps, bruised, bloodied, swollen. And they put them in there, and in my imagination, I, I think, think of Silas probably looking at Paul and saying, now what? We're, we were preaching the gospel, we helped this young girl, we saw God work, and now look at us. And, and maybe, maybe there's a, a tooth falling out from being struck in the mouth right there. So what do they do? Well, it, it tells us in verse 20, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. They're praying. And they're singing hymns to God. And the result is the prisoners were listening to them. So here's what James is saying. Is any of you afflicted? That's, that definitely qualifies for affliction, having been beaten and now imprisoned for no reason. And they're singing is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. I, this is just a side note, but you know what the result is? The prisoners were listening to them. I know it's a stretch, but maybe if you and I pray when we're afflicted, and if we sing when we're cheerful, maybe people will listen to us as well. Sin and sickness. Now we come, now we come to where the, the points of controversy start. As any, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now let me give you five key principles from the New Testament primarily about sickness. First, there are two categories of sin in the Bible. There's original sin and there's personal sin. We inherit the original sin of Adam. But we also bring our own sin to the table as well. Second, original sin introduced suffering, disease, and death into the world. That's what Romans 5 tells us. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin. It was not the way God designed it. The creation did not include death. It did not include disease. All that was a result of sin. Third, we know there is sometimes a direct link between personal sin and sickness. If you abuse your body... If you think of someone who's addicted, perhaps like to alcohol, and abuses alcohol and develops a disease or cirrhosis of the liver or something like that, you could say, well, I can see how your actions, your uh, addiction, your, your sinful uh, lack of self-control results in this. 
A person who is immoral and gets a sexually transmitted disease, you could say, well, I see a direct connection between the action and the sickness. But sometimes God reproves and disciplines his children through sickness. We know that. 1 Corinthians 11 says how God was, it says, this is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have died. They were in a wrong way partaking of the Lord's Supper. And there was a chastisement from God. Fourth observation, sometimes there's no relationship between sin and sickness. The lame beggar who's healed by Peter and John, there's no indication that person had any kind of wrong behavior on, on his part to be in that condition. Of course, you know the example in John 9 when Jesus and his disciples are entering into a city and they, they see a man who's begging, he's blind, and, and the disciples ask, Lord, was it his sin or the sin of his parents that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus rebukes him and says that had nothing to do with it. So sometimes there's no connection between sickness and sin. Last, it's not God's will that everyone be healed. Why do you say that, Chip? Well, we have examples. In, in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy, Paul, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. In 2 Corinthians, you know this passage where Paul says, I prayed. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You think about, well, look how many people Jesus healed. Well, relative to the population of the world, and I think estimates are around 200 million at the time that Jesus walked on the planet, then those that he healed was a very, very, very small number. And with one exception that we know of in the Gospels, he only healed people in close proximity to him. He never said, uh, everyone in this city 10 miles away is now well. Um, so the healings decreased also toward the end of his ministry. We see almost no healings except for the, the priestly guard that, that Peter cut his ear off toward the end, end of Jesus' ministry. So what is this prayer for the sick? Is anyone sick? A person being debilitated by some kind of sickness. It can be internal, it can be external, but the person's in need of help and need of healing. It's not the idea of, hey, I got a headache this morning. Let me call for the elders of the church. No, it's something chronic. It's, it's a condition that the person is suffering from. So what is the person to do if you, is anyone sick? Well, let him call for the elders of the church. The sick person is to take the initiative. James puts the responsibility of calling for the elders on the person who is sick, not on the church leadership to seek that person out. That, this is an important distinction that's been lost today. Now, this doesn't exclude elders and those of us who are elders and pastors uh, or, or from suggesting to the sick person that they call the elders, but the request needs to come from the person who is ill. Or like, I name many cases where the person who was ill couldn't speak, and uh, someone close to them called for us to do that. So what, what's the role of the elders? Okay, the, the person who is sick is to call for the elders, and what are they to do? Two things. First, let them pray over the person and let them anoint the person with oil in the name of the Lord. What's the oil? Pages have been written on this. 
thank the Lord, I'm going to give you about three sentences. Uh, we know that oil was used for medicine at that time, not the only thing used for medicine, but I believe it's symbolic in this case. It's symbolic of setting the person aside, of anointing for special attention. It's also symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. So anointing with oil shows we're setting the person apart to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. That's my understanding. We can talk later if you want to debate that. That's fine. Um, the elders are also to fulfill the second function, and, and they are to talk to the, to the sick brother or sister about any possible sin that may have led to this and have this person made a count, uh, confession to a person if they've sinned against them. Uh, it doesn't mean that the person needs to tell the elders about that sin. They just need to know, have you confessed any sin? Do you think, as you've, if you've uh, searched your heart, is there anything you need to confess? We very much resist this today. Uh, we resist accountability, especially in the church. Who are these people to ask me about my spiritual life, about my relationship with God? And yes, that's exactly what they're called to do. Why call the elders? Because Hebrews says they are leaders who will give an account. They keep watch over your soul. It's their duty to care for the flock. It's their calling to care for the flock and to pray for the flock. So they are to pray. That's the primary act they are to do. And believing prayer delivers because it brings God into the picture. Now notice, if a person is healed, who gets the glory in this situation? The tele-healer? The person who's having the, the meeting at the Colosseum, the, the healing meeting? And the attention goes on that person like, oh look, I went to hear so-and-so and I got healed? No. God gets the glory. There's no attention to the pastor or particular elder or anyone like that. So here's the procedure we followed in this church, and I want to encourage you to use it. We are notified, me as a pastor or one of the elders, and said, hey, so-and-so has called and asked if we will come and pray with them. Lay hands on them, anoint with oil, and do as the book of James says and pray for them. They've been chronically ill for months or weeks. So we assemble at the home of that person or at the hospital, sometimes here at the church. We just spend a moment, greet one another. We read James 5, 13 to 16. And then the, the person who is being prayed for is briefly asked if he or she has searched their heart and confessed any pertinent sin. The sick person then is anointed with oil and the elders gather around, lay hands on that person, and praise for them. Now, through the years, here and before we moved here, uh, as a serving in a church in Arkansas uh, on a staff, uh, I've been in numerous, numerous, I, ca I can't even remember how many such gatherings. Uh, I've prayed in such meetings. I've been prayed for in such meetings. And family members have been prayed for in such meetings. And there have been times the person has greatly improved almost immediately, perhaps even healed. There's been time when things appear to stay the same. Sometimes the physical situation remains the same, but the person spiritually seems to have renewed strength. God's spirit works and encourages them in some way. It's, I'm using mystical in a positive way. It's invisible. It's unexplainable. And so, this is what needs to happen. Uh, 
And I want to urge you to use this that God has set up. If you, if you don't think about that. Call on us who are elders for that purpose. It is an honor and it is our responsibility. And the men here never hesitate um, that service session members. Well, what's the promise of healing in verse 15? This is the problematic verse in the whole thing. What does James mean by prayer offered in faith? What is effective prayer? I mean, it seems to be a guaranteed, unqualified promise for healing. Wouldn't it be much either, easier if, if verse 15 said, and the prayer of faith may save the one who is sick, and the Lord might raise him up? But that's not what it says. The qualifier is the type of prayer, the prayer of faith. Now, do you remember the teaching of deism back in colonial America? It was very, very prominent. And that is that there was a creator of some type that created all that is, got the top spinning, but then left it. And is, is not engaged, is not involved in any way from day to day. I rarely meet someone who believes that today, though they are around. But we often live like deists. We're practical deists. Oh, I believe in God. I believe God's intimately involved with the details of my life, but I never pray about him, and I don't, I, I don't trust him, and I, I just go about living as though it's totally dependent on me. And Presbyterians may be the worst. I like what Steve Brown said, that if he's sick and in trouble, he'd rather not have a Presbyterian praying for him. <laughs> because often we're passive in our prayers. Lord, we don't know your will. We don't know what your will is in this situation. Our brother here is on the verge of death. And we don't know what will glorify you, but we know you will be glorified. So we'd like to pray for him, but we don't know what you want to do. Amen. You don't find prayers like that in the Bible. You find pleading, like Moses, when God was going to destroy the people, and he said, Lord, if you do this... All these people in this land will say, see, their God cannot bring them into the promised land. You find pleading, Lord, if it will bring you glory, it would seem to bring you glory to heal Brother Joe or Sister Sally of this. We don't know, but we ask you to use medicine or your mighty power or a combination of both that you might restore this person to health. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, said our, our prayers should be like arrows. And we shoot those up into heaven with our reasons. Lord, I don't know all that you are doing, but for the sake of your servant and what we are going through, would you spare this person? God is not offended by such. So prayer of faith is specific prayer. R.C. Sproul said about general prayer, part of the problem with our praying is that we would not recognize an answer if God gave it because we do not pray specifically enough. Also, prayers of faith are persistent. When I was a child, if I asked my parents something and then went back and repeated the request later, my father let me know, I already, told, I already answered that question, do not ask me again. Once was enough. I heard you and I said no. And maybe we carry that over to God to think, well, God will be offended if I take this same request every hour or every day, and yet Jesus taught otherwise. He told about the 
parable of the unjust judge with the woman that went to him day after day after day to where the judge finally said, let me get rid of her lest she wear me out. That's what the scripture says. She's wearing me out with her persistent request. We know about the neighbor at midnight who needed three loaves of bread. He's knocking on the door. Please get up. No, go away. I'm in bed. All, the whole family's in bed. I need three loaves. Go away. And he finally gets up and gives him what he needs. And prayers of faith are powerful and effective. We have the example of Elijah, and I'll close with this now, and Lord willing, return to this after the missions conference is over. You know the story of Elijah. It's the ninth century B.C. He appears suddenly on the scene. Wicked King Ahab is the king, and he says, except by my word, there'll be neither rain nor dew. Imagine the devastation, crop failure, illness, sanitation. They were totally dependent on the water supply. And yet, God answers that. So what is a prayer of faith? I'll leave you with this. Although it's happened rarely that I've ever seen in my life, there have been times God gives someone a special faith to believe something, a firm assurance, and it may not be shared by anyone else, that God is going to do something special. And he's not limited by our feeble faith. It's a putting into action what Ephesians 3 says. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. And Elijah had that. Elijah had that assurance. When he went before Ahab, God had sent him. As one person said, it is a God-given prayer that's prayed back to God. We rarely find this in the Bible. Rarely. And I think that's what James is referring to at that moment. There were times that even the Apostle Paul and others knew God is going to work here. Uh, when Peter and John went up to the temple and, and the man was there who, and they healed him, the lame man, they knew he was going to be healed. We could say, well, that was unique to the apostles. It was. But there are other examples as well. With that in mind, let me abruptly close. Let's pray together. Father, there's not a person here who's not affected by this in extended family or with close friends. Perhaps we ourselves have been disillusioned for prayers prayed for healing for ourselves or others, and they seem to go unheard or at least unanswered. pray you'd help us to take to heart the words of James and know that our brothers and sisters in Christ 2,000 years ago were facing the same things we face. And for those here who are afflicted, we ask that you would enable them, even today, to pray. For those who are cheerful to sing praises, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand, if you will, for our benediction, and then we'll sing together the first fourth stanza of Come Thou Almighty King. We depart with God's blessing. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.